0: Well, good morning, Chapel Hill. My name is Julie Hawkins, and I am one of the pastors here. And before we get started this morning, I want to take a moment to honor our veterans on this Veterans Day weekend. If you are a veteran, would you please stand so that we may honor you? Let's give a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for your service, and we are so glad that you're with us in worship today. You can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you for serving your country. I have a little piece of Julie Hawkins trivia on this Veterans Day weekend that is appropriate to Veterans Day. I come from a long line of vets in my family. I have had a family member serve in every major U.S. conflict all the way back to the Revolutionary War. My great-great-great-great-great grandfather, Melchior Brenneman, fought for York County in Pennsylvania in the Revolutionary War. You see, my family really loved the ideals of the American Revolution, especially freedom of religious thought. My great-great-great-great-great-great-great grandfather, Melchior the Pilgrim, was sent to the new world by my great 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 times great grandfather Melchior, the Exile, Brendan. I have two thoughts on this. First off, I have two daughters. They are so lucky they are girls. I have eight Melchior's in my family line. I would definitely have a Melchior Hawkins had they been a boy. And second, why don't we use the names anymore? The Elk- Exile? the pilgrim. Isn't that so cool? I would love if you would call me Julie the Wise or Julie the Brave. I'd even take Julie the Ridiculous because it is so awesome. But Melchior, the exile, he spent 10 years in the 1600s in prison in Switzerland, the area of Bern. You can go to Thune Castle where he was imprisoned and see the name Brenneman etched into the cell that he was imprisoned in. He was beaten to within an inch of his life on more than one occasion. His son, Hans, was imprisoned and eventually sold into slavery, and Melchior and his family were exiled to Germany from Switzerland. This was all because he preached—he was a preacher, I also come from a line of preachers—he preached baptism by conversion instead of infant baptism. That's why he was exiled. And so when William Penn came to the village they were living in, in Germany a few years later, and he talked about a place where there was freedom of religious thought, the new world, Melchior sent his son, the pilgrim, to that new world with the family Bible. I think we have a picture of that Bible from the 1500s. This Bible is in a museum in Ohio. You can go see it today. My family cared deeply about religious freedom. And it seems so odd to us when we think about baptism that he, my grandfather, almost lost his life over baptism. Can you imagine that level of division, a division of that magnitude? But it's not hard for us to imagine division in the church, is it? Because the church in America feels more divided than ever. We're divided on issues of politics and culture and race not to mention doctrine. We're divided on baptism and communion, women in church leadership, gifts of the Spirit, the end times. And then, of course, we also have those day-to-day divisions, living with our brothers and sisters. We're not always easy to live with. The Church feels like it's more divided than ever, and research is showing more and more that that might be the case. We are more divided than ever that division, it has the power to damage us, to damage our relationships with one another. It also has the power to damage our witness in the world. And yet, we are called to unity by Jesus. In his high pri- priestly prayer, Jesus prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one that we would have such a unity that it would reflect the relationship that He has with God the Father. And He said in the Sermon on the Mount that we should have this level of unity, that if you come into worship and you remember that someone has something against you, you should stand up, leave worship, reconcile yourself to that person, and then come back and bring your gift to the altar. Does anybody feel like they might need to stand up and go and make a phone call in the lobby? I know that I do. I know that I have some reconciliation work to do. But before you do that, stay put. Stay where you are. I want to give you from the book of Joshua a few tips for conflict de-escalation that we see in Joshua 22. And these things, they move us from conflict to the unity that we have in Jesus we're going to do a quick sit rep before we get to Joshua 22. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to pull them out and look at them because we'll be walking through this really big, beautiful story this morning. But we find Israel as the 12 tribes. Israel was made up of 12 tribes, and these tribes were unified in the way that they worshiped one God. They were God's chosen people. They adhered to God's law. They worshiped Him at one altar. And this made them very different from the surrounding culture that had many, many, many false gods. But each of those tribes was unique and distinct. They had their own tribal identity. They had inherited their own land that they occupied in the conquest. And some of them even had their own callings and professions. Think about the Levites. They had a unique calling. There were two-and-a-half tribes within the tribes that were very unique because they weren't just tribal identity. They were distant. These two-and-a-half tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh—their land that they inherited wasn't even in the Promised Land. It was east of the Jordan. So they were different because of distance. They were also different because they had asked for their inheritance before the conquest. They asked Moses if they could settle east of the Jordan because they had so much livestock. And Moses said, yes, but there was a little bit of division there because he had to argue with them and convince them that they needed to be a part of the conquest and serve along their brothers and sisters in the conquest. It's something that they made good on. They made good on that oath that they fought during the conquest. But there was that division. And so now the conquest is over, and they're sent back to the frontier lands east of the Jordan River, and all of a sudden we find Israel on the brink of civil war. When they left, Joshua said, go. I command you to go and follow the Lord's commandments, love and serve the Lord. And they go back to their frontier land home, and we read in verse 10 that the very first thing they do when they get back is they build an impressive altar— Some translations call this an altar of imposing size. This was an altar that was trying to say something. It's what you call a statement piece. It meant to be noticed, and it was noticed. We see in verse 11, it says, the Israelites received this report. We don't know who gave that report, who brought the report to the Israelites, but somebody came and said, look, The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the entrance of the land of Canaan in Gilaloth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to launch an attack against them. Israel is on the brink of civil war, but they do not go to war, they quickly move to unity and we are going to look at the conflict de-escalation tactics that got them to that point. FBI negotiator and author Chris Voss, he says that conflict de-escalation and negotiation is not unlike parenting. Anyone who has a toddler knows that sometimes you do feel like you are negotiating in a hostage situation. The parents usually feel like the hostage in that situation. But it's Conflict de-escalation is not unlike parenting, and so our three tips are things that you might have heard your parents say to you before. And the first one is pick your battles. When I was a senior in high school, my family was blending. My dad and Mary got married that year, and one of Mary's favorite phrases, it's her birthday today, happy birthday, Mary. One of her favorite phrases was pick your battles, because there were a lot of battles that we could be fighting at that time. And not every battle is worth the fight. This one that we see in Joshua 22 was absolutely worth the fight because Israel thought that their brothers had built an alternative altar. God commanded them that they have one altar, one place of worship, one place that they gathered at Shiloh. And here they've built this other altar. That's not just any altar, it's an imposing altar. And it's not just anywhere, it's on the Israelite side of the Jordan River. And so that battle was worth fighting, and they were ready to go to war not every battle that we fight is worth fighting. I feel like every time I get on social media, I see a new little war popping up. And man, those battles are exhausting. They make us feel like we're being attacked on all sides, and it is not always worth it. But how do we know which of those battles we should pick? I think a great place to look—I'm a pastor, so I'm always going to say this—is in the Bible. The great place to start is by looking in God's Holy Word to know what battles we should pick. We have to know what we believe. We have to know what's important. And more than that, we have to know what's most important. And so we look to Scripture. The early church fathers called Scripture the canon of Scripture. It's, that means that it was the standard by which they lived their life, and it should be the standard by which we live our life. So when we're looking at issues of doctrine, I like to ask the question, Is this doctrine clear in Scripture? What is its importance in Scripture? And how does it impact the gospel? Let me give you an example of that. Take something like Jesus as the way of salvation. That's something that's very clear in Scripture. Jesus is the only way by which we are saved. So if somebody disagrees with me on that, that's a battle that I'm going to pick. But baptism? baptism is clear in Scripture, but the method and manner of baptism is not. So if I have a friend who disagrees with me on the method and manner of baptism, that's not a hill that I'm going to die on. I might put a little fight into the battle, but not as much. And the sad reality is that many of our battles are not about doctrine at all, are they? They're about culture. A question that i like to add to that, is it clear in Scripture, how does it impact the gospel? Then i like to add the question, does this have eternal consequence or impact, this cultural battle that I am engaging in? Because sometimes we try so hard to win the argument that we lose the soul, huh? I think that it's so important that we have opinions on things. I hope that you all voted this last week, and I hope that you voted in different ways. I hope that we didn't all vote the same. It's good to have opinions. At the same time, I want you to ask the question, is this hill worth dying on? What is the eternal significance of this battle? This really came into view for me yesterday when, um, like most parents in Gig Harbor, I was doing a soccer Saturday, driving all over Kingdom Come, taking my kids to soccer, and I was out in Puyallup, and I ran into a friend that I knew from college. And this friend left the church because somebody told her that if she didn't vote a certain way, she couldn't be a Christian. And she thought, oh, well, I don't vote a certain way, so I must not be a Christian. It has had an internal impact, eternal impact on her. Is this a hill to die on? So, if we know what battles to pick, the next thing that we learn from our passage is run towards the giant. This might not be something that your parents say to you but pastor mark is one of his favorite phrases that he teaches us pastor kids of his about things that we need to do in terms of conflict we run towards the giant we don't shy away from the elephant in the room and in this situation we're running towards the conflict we're running towards the problem it says in verse thirteen, the Israelites sent Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest. He was accompanied by ten elders, one from each of the ten tribes. Sometimes we feel like we just want to avoid conflict, right? We don't want to enter into the confrontation. It would be easier to avoid it. It might have been easier for Israel to avoid the confrontation. I mean, the two-and-a-half tribes, they were distant. They were far away. Why did they need to even engage in this? But for the sake of unity, because they knew that this was a battle they had to fight, they ran towards the giant and confronted the problem. And Phineas, he's a little bit of a giant himself. He's not the person that you would want to like, open the door to on a rainy night. I picture Phineas Uh, looking a little bit like Clint Eastwood, rolling into town on a horse with a tumbleweed, rolling in front of him. Phineas was a pretty intense dude. You can read more about Phineas in Numbers 25. It is not rated PG. It is not a bedtime story. But Phineas was known for his zeal for the Lord and that he would enact God's justice if that is what he was called to do. And so they ran towards the giant, with the giant. It may feel like it's easier in our life to ignore the problems around us, the things that cause us to be conflicted and in conflict with our brothers and sisters. But I truly believe that when we ignore conflict, when we ignore that divide, do you know what happens? That divide gets wider and wider and wider until it's irreconcilable. And if it's a wound— That wound festers and festers and festers until it has to be cut off. And the reality is, if you've ever been in a situation where you're sitting with somebody that you're in conflict with, whether you're at work or home, at the Thanksgiving table maybe in a couple of weeks, if you're in confrontation with somebody, you can feel it simmering under the surface the entire time. So even if you're not running towards that giant of conflict, you're still feeling the conflict. I think of the conflicts in my life that take up so much of my mental energy and make me feel a disquiet in my spirit. So when we ignore the conflict, we're actually not ignoring it at all. We're giving it a whole lot of real estate in our lives and in our minds. We're in a season in the American church where people are leaving the church. I talked about my friend who left the church. We're also in a season in the American church where people are moving from one church to another more than ever. This is... um, Something that I know affects some of you. Some of you are here because you came from another church, and we are glad that you are here. You are welcome here. Thank you for being a part of the body of Christ at Chapel Hill. But if you left your former church because of conflict, you need to know that there will come a moment when we upset you. There will come a time when I say something that makes you angry, or Pastor Mark says something that upsets you. We will not be conflict-free here at Chapel Hill because we're human. And so I want to invite you to move towards the conflict. I would much rather you come and talk to us, come and walk with us through that conflict so that hopefully we can make it out the other side. Maybe we won't agree, but at least we can walk through it together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can have that be a part of our witness Because the problem is that if you just leave and if you just find people that agree with you, do you know what happens when you slowly get rid of all the people that disagree with you? You're surrounded by people who agree with you. Doesn't that sound so nice? you're only surrounded by people who agree with you. That is not what the body of Christ looks like. Pastor Larry talked when we welcomed our new members about the body of Christ and how it has many members. The body of Christ is supposed to be diverse and different. We're supposed to be able to disagree on those non-essential issues. In 1 Corinthians, Paul read Paul's epistles. Almost all of them are written about church conflict. The early church had a lot of conflict, and he wrote about what was essential and what wasn't. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter about church conflict, he says that for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. We are all one through the spirit of Christ. We see in that verse, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, Jews and Greeks were very different. They had a lot to disagree about. And slaves and free were in completely different lives, different people, and yet in Christ they were one. We think of the disciples. We have tax collectors, zealots, sinners, people that should not have sat at the same table. But in Jesus Christ, they were one. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to come together in unity. And so we have to move towards that conflict, run towards that giant, and have the conversation with the person that we disagree with. Which brings us to our final conflict de-escalation tactic. This one is one that whenever I say it, I think, oh no, I've become my mom. And it is, use your words. This might be the hardest one. Use your words. We know that the two-and-a-half tribes, if they had built an altar for sacrifice, that was a battle that had been picked. That was a battle worth fighting. And they had sent Phineas, their giant, they were running towards the conflict. It would have been worth going to civil war over that issue. But Phineas doesn't come in with guns ablazing, sword brandish. He doesn't come in with fighting words. Instead, he comes in and he uses his words. In verse 16 he says, Why have you disobeyed the God of Israel by turning back today from following the Lord? He asks them a question. Brothers and sisters, the power of asking questions. Please ask people questions. And then he says, Now you dare to turn back from following the Lord? you are rebelling today against the Lord. Tomorrow he may break out in anger against the entire community of Israel. So he asks the question, and then he says something from his perspective. This is how I see it. He uses his words. He even gives them an out. He says, if your land that you're living in is so bad or impure, please come across the river. We'll give you a place to live in our land. Just don't do this thing." because phineas knew that god took sin seriously he was very serious in his response but he also pursued peace he pursued unity with his brothers and he did this by having a conversation with them and the most important thing that he did happens at the very end he listened he listened and waited for their response And the two and a half tribes, the moment they hear what they're being accused of, building an altar for sacrifice, they cry out to God and they say, God, if this is true, if we built this altar as a sacrifice, that you yourself, God, take vengeance on us this day. Because that is what we would deserve. But instead they say, we swear we have done this because we were worried that in the future, your descendants would say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord God of Israel? And then, so we decided to build this altar, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a reminder to us and you that our descendants who follow us, that we will honor the Lord with our very presence. The altar was not an altar of sacrifice. It was an altar of witness. It was an altar that was more like a memorial. It was supposed to point to the work that God had done in Israel and in the conquest. It was to show their children and their children's children that they were God's people. It was a witness to their kids. That is something that really resonates with me. I will build any altar of witness if it means that my kids will know that I love God and that God loves me that's something that should resonate with us all. To find unity, they used their words. And at the end, Phineas says, the Lord himself is in our midst today. They come together in worship of the one true God in unity. To find unity, we have to use our words. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to sit, even if it's people that we disagree with because they are God's children as well, and we might learn something from them, or at least learn where they're coming from. Many of our friends that disagree with us, they hold their perspective for important reasons, and so we need to hear that perspective. We might still disagree with them when we walk away. In fact, I think that we will. I think that we will, but we can still move forward, and that's okay to disagree with people. This is a lesson that I'm continually learning, my brothers and sisters, how to come together in unity and talk to my brothers and sisters that I disagree with. But it is a lesson that I'm learning. Some of my closest friends are people that I disagree with about important things. And these aren't just like smallish things. These are like mediumish important things. These are things that have an impact on my life. Things like women in the pulpit. I have friends, I have family members that disagree with me standing here today. That's a hard thing. But I am able to sit with those brothers and sisters and hear their perspective. I'm able to recognize that it's not a hill that I want to die on. Is it easy? No. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because I'm learning to love and I'm learning more about how Christ loves me. I'm learning to love more like Jesus. One of the most powerful phrases I've learned through Alpha is, tell me more about that. Sitting with somebody and asking that question, tell me more about that. Israel, they almost went to war over a misunderstanding, but instead at the end, they're sitting together in unity. We can have that same movement from conflict to unity in the body of Christ. At the beginning of this message, I said that if we took Jesus seriously, which I take Jesus very seriously, I hope that you do too, but if we take Jesus seriously, then we should all go making some phone calls out in the lobby. I want to encourage you to do that this week. Maybe even do it this morning. The seagull hawks have a bye week this week, so you have some time. It is a rainy day. Make some phone calls with people that you need to be reconciled to. Reach out to a brother or sister who you disagree with. And I'm even gonna give you a little bit of a script of a conversation. I want you to call them and say, I'd like to talk to you about fill in the blank, whatever that conflict is that you have with them. And then say this question, can I hear about it from your perspective? And then when they share something about it, I want you to say, tell me more about that. Perhaps after that you'll say, I have a different perspective on this, but we believe in the same Jesus. And because of Jesus, we can look past our differences and move forward in unity. Or if you have a different type of conflict, you can call and say, I feel this way, about something that you did, the assumption that I'm making, the misunderstanding that I have, the story that I'm making up in my mind is that this is what the situation is. Can you tell me your perspective?" And again, we can come together in unity with our brothers and sisters. Because the greatest witness that we can offer the world is the unity of the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are diverse, we're different, we disagree on things, but we are able to come around what is essential, and that is Jesus. The two and a half tribes, they built an altar as a memorial. We are that altar of memorial. We are the altar of witness for the world. And just like the altar in this story, it pointed to the work that God had done, our altar of witness, the church, points to the work that Jesus has done in each of us. Our altar of witness is pointing back to Jesus so that the world might know this great God that we serve. And when we feel that conflict well up, The best thing that we can do is turn our eyes to Jesus. Look to that thing that unifies us. Come together instead of moving apart in division. Because of Jesus, we can find unity. In Jesus, we are one. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that in Jesus Christ we're one family, we're one body, and we are one in spirit. Father, I pray for anyone who has things in their life that need to be reconciled. Would you grant them the spirit of your reconciliation that comes through the work that Jesus did in each of our lives? For anyone who feels that desire to make a phone call, would you give them the courage to pick up the phone and have that conversation? And would you grant acceptance from the person on the other side of the line? May we move forward in unity, Father, as we move towards you. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.